When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. I hope something you hear today encourages you. A reading from Second Peter. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. They will even deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will follow their licentious ways, and because of these, te- of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced against them long ago has not been idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of deepest darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, even though he saved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood on a world of the ungodly. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction and made them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by their lawless deeds that he had, that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge their flesh in depraved lust and who despise authority. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This uh, Advent theme of judgment that we find in the Old Testament readings for Advent or also in the New Testament readings for Advent that there is this belief and teaching and warning of judgment in the New Testament that is just as strong as in the Old Testament. The Old and New Testaments are two witnesses to one thing, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the world. They are not two separate entities representing two different religions or two different gods or anything like that. They're all one story for Christians. Um, And this one story is easily switched around. And Peter says that he has witnessed the real subject of the story, who is Jesus, in real life. He knows who he is. He witnessed the transfiguration. And he's never been the same since. But there will be false teachers who come among the communities of Christians that are already existing in Peter's time and more to follow. Um, It is hard to know kind of what was happening in the local context of Christianity at this time. Historians don't have a lot of sources for Christianity at this time. In fact, many of the leading intellectuals of the day never mention Christians at all. Um, Christians at this time were considered a subset of Judaism. 
the Roman Empire knew lots about Judaism and employed um, lots of Jewish people in various occupations for the for the state of Rome um, at high levels, and also in the armies of Rome. There were many Jewish soldiers um, and administrators. By the time of 66 AD and 70 AD, you have a real rupture in Jewish-Roman relations. A Jewish army of uh, freedom fighters beats a Roman legion, the first time Rome is ever defeated in the field of battle since, the, um, since becoming an empire. Eventually that defeat there, that legion, leads to the Jewish war, which ends in the destruction of Jerusalem and the last stand at Masada, where over a hundred Jewish people, men, women, and children have sheltered there, um, die by mass suicide rather than be captured as slaves. And even to this day, the um, IDF forces, when they swear their oath of allegiance and commissioning oath, the Israeli Defense Force, um, they do that, take that oath on Masada. I'm not sure if that's every single time or just uh, occasionally, but that is where they take the oath and they say, Masada will not fall again. So this is the context of this letter of Peter. Christianity is really not known um, really outside of the small circles it runs in. But even in this early day, there are various factions among early Christians. Paul says, there must be factions among you. How else will you know what is true and what is not? Um, Paul recognizes the fact that there's a number of different ways of being Christian. Some are better than others. Some are completely harmful to people. Others might just be the difference between Peter and Paul or Apollos and Paul or two apostles that might be slightly different but are still preaching the same good news of Jesus. But these false teachers come in. Um, they deny the master who bought them. This is a reference to Jesus. Um, and his crucifixion. It's rare to find in the, in the letters of Peter too many references to the crucifixion, even though Peter is a near eyewitness to the crucifixion. It never says that Peter is there at the crucifixion, but he's certainly there just moments before it, there denying that he knows Jesus in the courtyard of his trial. Peter is very close to the crucifixion, and he points out that these false teachers deny the master who bought them. Um, this is sort of the, the idea that we are ransomed from sin when Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead. All of his followers are freed from the enslavement to sin. We are freed from that, um, that sort of trap of our nature that is always leading us towards choices that seem good for us, but end up being harmful for us and harmful for other people over and over again. So this idea that Jesus ransomed us from that slavery, that enslavement to sin and death, is a really big theme in early Christianity and all through the Bible, that we are bought with a price, is said in the scriptures, that we, just like on the slave market of the ancient world, um, Jesus stepped in and paid for us so that we could be free. Um, that is a, a beautiful image of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's not one that 
really dominates modern theology. We don't like to think of anyone buying us and um, owning us or letting us go free in any way, shape, or form. And that's not a metaphor that, that really we see in the world around us in any way that we can fully be aware of, unlike in the times in this our nation's history and before that where people really were bought and sold in slavery and um, all the other harmful degradations of those events. But um, that is the metaphor that Peter uses for these false teachers. They deny the master who bought them. Um, we should always remember what Jesus has done for us whenever we sort of wonder what we should believe or what we should think. Christians always come back to Jesus and what he did for us. Um, we do not, we'll never agree on everything as Christians. We'll never be sure of everything that we say, but we can be sure about Jesus. And he is the one that we keep coming back to, um, no matter what. No matter what the church has laid, what heavy burden the church has laid on people, what um, authoritarian regimes of church leadership have inflicted on people, people still come back to Jesus. <clears throat> and these false teachers are moving people away from Jesus. They are denying that Jesus bought them. Um, there's a real self-improvement um, emphasis in early um, new religious movements in Christianity or cults or heresies, whatever you want to call them. Um, heresies just comes from the word factions. Paul says, there must be factions among you. Um, eventually that word took on a more technical meaning to mean actually wrong belief. But originally it just meant a party of belief or a, a, way, a community that said, no, we believe this and you believe that. Um, just ideological and religious differences. But um, this is the, 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 that they are bringing people further from Jesus and they'll bring swift destruction on themselves. Um, P Peter seems to mention um, their greed and uses the word licentiousness, um, often a word associated with sexual immorality. Um, and this dovetails with his next comments in the rest of the chapter with Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis, all the way through Genesis 10, the flood. Um, the angels who sinned, as he mentions in verse 4, um, got punished. And they got put in chains of deepest darkness, awaiting the day of judgment. And that was the events of Genesis 6. He tells us that um, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took for them wives of any they choose. They, basically, we have here the the early mythology stories that we find in Greek mythology and Roman mythology and Babylonian mythology of very bored and powerful gods who desire human women and sexually assault them, molest them, impregnate them. Um, there are some stories of what we might consider romance in those um, stories, but they are very few and far between, usually involve some sort of trickery and some sort of coercion. Famously, Cassandra um, uh, stands up to one of them, to Apollo. Cassandra is in the besieged city of Troy, and she is uh, there as the Greeks have besieged the city and are about to take it over. And um, she has... Uh, she goes to the temple and uh, 
prays and there Apollo meets her and tries to sexually assault her and she resists and says no. Um, And so Apollo curses her with the gift of prophecy that she will always be able to see the future, but the curse is that no one will ever believe her. And so as the city of Troy falls, she, with this curse, runs around and tells everybody what's going to happen to them in very striking detail, but nobody believes her. Um, And and even when it's too late, they just don't. Um, So the idea that these gods are coming down and sexually assaulting women and taking them for wives and all the ways that that goes down is what Peter describes um, these false teachers. That's kind of how they do that. Um, You'll always see sexual exploitation being part of um, false teaching, I think, as a hallmark of it, um, financial and sexual exploitation. Um, and that um, certainly we see that in every single church experience. And this is the origin of so many of the new religious movements that come out of Christianity's early years that we would call heresies or cults. They usually were attempting <clears throat> at their best to avoid the rigid structure of authority that rises up in the early church pretty quickly. The order of bishops, priests, and deacons is pretty early on in Christian history. And and that you can see how that hierarchical system could be really abusive, really coercive. The appeal to authority rather than the appeal to argument or the appeal to study. Um, To combat some of the early Gnosticism, uh, Christian leaders and bishops like Irenaeus, Um, point out that we have an unbroken chain or apostolic succession to the apostles, and that's what guards are teaching from becoming heretical. And the heretics have an unbroken chain going back to Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician is a character that shows up in the book of Acts who sees the power of the Holy Spirit and tries to buy it. He offers the apostles money for the power of the Holy Spirit. And they say famously, your money and your something perish with you. Um, You can't buy the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the worst thing you can ever try to do. And Simon, something bad happens to him. I forget what. And um, Simon the magician becomes a sort of symbol of these early false teachers. Someone who sees the power of God and knows it's powerful but goes about getting it in a way that is completely illegitimate just so he can use it to exploit other people, to get something from them. Um, This is the hallmark of false teaching that, um, and they go back to, the the term simony uh, comes from Simon the magician who tries to buy the Holy Spirit. Uh, Simony becomes a very common practice in the medieval church basically buying your office, you'd save up enough money or your dad gave you money and you would buy a bishop prick. You would buy the role of bishop um, and you might never live there and and administer it. Maybe you'd pay somebody else to go do that and you would live a comfortable life as a gentleman and not have any religious responsibilities, but you might have two or three bishoprics that you got the rents from, from the land that they owned and This became a really big problem in the medieval church that the Reformation sought to undo, and also the Council of Trent, which is the Roman Catholic version of that, where they try to 
undo this practice of simony, which becomes so pernicious. And I, and I would argue that a lot of people that practice simony probably were very orthodox in their faith. They probably believed everything other Christians believed. But it's the practice of evil that makes a person evil. It is not the, um, it's not always their belief systems, although belief and actions often go together. Uh, the behavior of a person, according to Peter here, is much more important than even kind of what they believe. But he says that God will judge him like God judged the angels who sinned in Noah. He quotes from a similar, almost word for word from the book of James or book of Jude here, a very short book about false teachers. And all of this echoes the book of Enoch, which is a pre-Christian um, extra biblical book that um, enters into the discourse of Second Peter and the book of Jude um, as well. I believe uh, the book of Jude uh, directly quotes from Enoch saying, Enoch says this, and the, this book of Second Peter um, directly quotes from Enoch and the idea that these angels who sinned are cast into hell, they're reserved there for judgment, that even in the angelic realm, God is in control, and God has a system of justice and punishment um, for these angels. So if God is doing that with the angels who are really powerful, um, God's also going to consider doing that with humans who are trying to hurt and abuse the Christian early Christian church, this, this flock that Jesus love so dearly. Then he goes in this long description of Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah. How, how, how righteous Lot was so vexed in his righteous soul every day that he lived in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or I think Lot lived in Sodom. Um, and we know from the story that Abraham and Lot, nephew and uncle, um, they have a conflict. And so they they say, what do we do? We'll divide this land up. You go that way, I'll go this way, and we won't bother each other anymore. And it says Lot chose the city because it was a lot easier to live in the city than live out in a tent with all the goats and the sheep. So Lot chooses the city. And here we have a sort of mythology or a story of um, which is better, which is more moral, the urban life or the life of the, of the shepherd. Um, we see in the Bible, it's always this returning to the theme of the shepherd. Somehow, the simplicity of the shepherd's life, the protection the shepherd gives to the sheep, um, this, this, um, this role of the kings of Israel, David the shepherd, and, and even Jesus called this, both the lamb and the shepherd, I am the good shepherd, and the shepherds in the Christmas story who come to Jesus and recognize his messiahship. There's this theme of like shepherds being good, that being a shepherd is a pure profession. Living in a city might not be that way, and you'll have your righteous soul vexed every day. Um, it's easy for moralists to kind of see this as a, as that you know Lot is living in the city and seeing all the um, the sins that are often associated with Sodom and Gomorrah being played out. Um, and there may be some of that going on in this text, but the sin of Sodom, according to the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel, and others that comment on what happened, and the book of Genesis itself that describe this horrific scene where Lot welcomes these strangers into his home, and this mob shows up to try to sexually assault them and do violence to them. 
this is not the sin of what um, some will say is homosexuality or or same-sex attraction or the sin of being gay or anything like that. It's the sin of of assault and um, and violence and non-hospitality. That's very clear in all the texts about Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment of God falls on Sodom and Gomorrah not because they're a city, not because um, they're it's because of their the violence that they do try to do to the angels of God. So again, what they what the men of Sodom did was wrong then, and it's still wrong. Um, it's not. It has nothing to do with their sexual orientation, or any kind of thing like that. So, but there's a long discourse here about Lot and how vexed he was in his righteous soul. That's probably an allusion to how the Christians felt at the time of Peter. They're living every day in this Roman Empire, which was really devoted to making the most amount of money for the Romans, and everybody was part of it. Even the Jews and Christians who live far, far away from the Roman, the center of the Roman Empire. They'd probably never go to Rome. They'd never see the emperor except maybe on the face of a coin. And yet every part of their lives was being exploited to enrich those people that lived on those seven hills of Rome. And you can see how um, living in that commerce, living in that environment would vex a person's righteous soul every day. That they had to participate in the system of exploitation, whether they liked it or not. You see this in early Christian texts when it comes to meat offered to idols and other ethical dilemmas that people had. Um, This is what Lot felt like, and this is what the early Christians feel like. Um, But then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. So Peter is giving them a way out. He's saying, there's a way out. When these false teachers come and they convince you of what they're saying, There is always a way out. God will always send a way out. I think this is true for our lives too, and I'll end here. I'm going pretty long today, but um, God always has a way out for each of you. No matter what you're facing, there's always a way out. It may not seem obvious right now. It's probably the last thing you'll ever expect. Um, And yet God always takes care of God's people. There's a way out. Um, For Lot, there was a way out, and it was costly and horrific, and lots of terrible things happened. But there was a way out. And Peter reminds his readers, God will always make a way to get out from under the control of these false teachers. Because that's ultimately what they want, is they want power and control. They often offer this liberating, as he says, licentiousness. You don't have to abide by all these rules anymore. Um, But their rules are just obeying them. Um, And that is ultimately what Peter's warning about. Because Peter's an apostle, and he knows that there is power in the apostolate. There is power in being an apostle, and abusing that power is ultimately um, brings the destruction and judgment of God. Today is the 14th of December. And the day uh, we remember Juan de la Cruz, or also known as John of the Cross, a mystic. John of the Cross was unknown outside the discalced Carmelites. Discalced means no shoes. 
for nearly 300 years after his death. More recently, scholars of Christian spirituality have found in him a hidden treasure, once described by Thomas Merton as the church's safest mystical theologian. John has been called the poet's poet, spirit of flame, celestial and divine. Um, That comment by Merton, the church's safest mystic, uh, alludes to what we were talking about in 2 Peter, that often false teachers um, claim um, all sorts of mystical experiences to convince everybody that they're really speaking for God, and, um, and that often is very unsafe. But John of the Cross stayed connected to that community. He was born in 1542 at Fonteveros near Avila, Spain. After his third birthday, his father died, leaving his mother and her children reduced to poverty. John received an elementary education at an orphanage. And by the age of 17, he had learned carpentry, tailoring, sculpturing, and painting through apprenticeships to local craftspeople. After university studies with the Jesuits, John entered the Carmelite order in Medina del Campo and completed his theological studies in Salamanca. In 1567, he was ordained to the priesthood and was recruited for, by Teresa of Avila for the reformation of the Carmelite order. By the age of 35, he had studied extensively, had been a spiritual director for many, and yet devoted himself for the search of God so fully that he reached the peak of the mystical experience, a complete transformation in God. But John became disillusioned with what he considered the laxity of the Carmelites. In 1568, he opened a monastery of Discalced. Again, those that don't wear shoes, Carmelites. An act that met with a sharp resistance from the general chapter of the Calced Carmelites, the Shoed Carmelites. John was seized, taken to Toledo, and imprisoned in the monastery during nine months of great hardship. He comforted himself by writing poetry. It was while he was in prison that he composed the greatest part of his luminous masterpiece, the spiritual canticle, as well as a number of shorter poems. Other major works are The Ascent of Mount Carmel, The Living Flame of Love, and The Dark Night. In this latter work, Noche Obscura del Alma, that gave the English language the phrase the dark night of the soul, or the expression in the dark night of the soul, it's always three o'clock in the morning. If you've ever had a dark night of the soul, it might be good to read what John of the Cross said about it. After a severe illness, John died on December 14, 1591, in Obeda in southern Spain. So a story of how a mystic who nobody knew about for about 300 years was discovered and um, appreciated and um, thankful for his witness to the Christian faith throughout his struggles and trials, but also through his joy and participation in community. We pray this collect for John of the Cross, judge eternal throned in splendor, who gave us Juan de la Cruz, strength of purpose and mystical faith, that sustained him even through the dark night of the soul. Shed thy light on all who love thee, in unity with Jesus Christ, our Savior, who with thee and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth one God forever and ever. Amen. Pray a colic for this ember day, a day when we remember 
<clears throat> all those who are being ordained or in the process of ordination. <coughs> because thou didst send thy beloved Son to redeem us from sin and death and to make us heirs in him of everlasting life, and when he shall come again in power and great triumph to judge the world, we may without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. <clears throat> and we'll pray this uh, colic for this week of East of Advent, the stirrup uh, prayer. Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. <clears throat>